Good morning. Our readings this morning are from Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, and 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may have a seat, and as, as you go into your seat, let's go to the Lord and pray for our time in His Word. Heavenly Father, we, we desire to understand more and more what You have for us in Your Word and Your glorious Word, the Scriptures that are living and active and are able to cut through uh, all things to get to the heart of the matter in us. We pray that You would take this opportunity to shepherd us, to help us see Christ more clearly, to help us treasure Him, to help us understand that we are the body of Christ. What a glorious mystery that is. And Jesus, you are our head. You are present with us this morning as once again your people have gathered together to be the visible kingdom of God, the visible expression of your kingdom that has come to earth and is expanding all the more. We're so grateful. We need your help. Would you do that this morning, Spirit? Open our heart and mind to the truths of the gospel and of your word, and we humbly ask all these things in Christ. Amen. 
Well, it's so great to see you again. My name is Jeff Jamison. If I haven't met you, I hope I get to before the day is over. Uh, we've been in a little series here, a three-week series, and so this is week three, uh, really exploring what it is to be church, and specifically, what does it mean to be city church? Because that is what we are familiar with. This is our church. And so we've called this uh, little series further up and further in as we consider more of these things together. But I want to start with a, a question, and the question might be a little unusual, but here it is. The question for you this morning is, do you fully believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ? Do you fully believe that Jesus came, took on flesh, fully God, but fully man, do you believe fully in the incarnation of Jesus Christ? And I think knowing most of us in this room, your answer would be yes. You may be a bit puzzled about why we're even talking about this. It's not Christmas. So often we talk about Jesus being born in the flesh, incarnation at Christmas time. But, but I know that most of us believe that to be true. But if we do believe that, then we have to also ask this question, what does it mean that the church is the body of Christ? Because you can't hear with, with any integrity what Sam just read to us from 1 Corinthians 12. You can't hear that with integrity and not consider the nature of the church and not seeing that the nature of the church is incredibly dependent on the fact that Jesus has a fully human body. We're going to spend most of our time this morning in that, uh, those two verses that Sam also read at the very beginning out of Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And what we saw there is that there were some in the early church that had a bad habit. And the habit was they were neglecting meeting together. And by doing so, I would argue that they were in the, they were in the bad habit of unbodying Christ of unbodying Jesus Christ. If Christ was born of flesh and our union with him as the church, we become one flesh with Christ. That's what Ephesians 5 says. And, then, and that his body is made of many members that are not operating independently of one another, but are with one another in cohesion, in integrity with one another. Then when members do not gather together regularly, they are effectively unbodying Christ. Specifically here in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, if that is what's happening, we're missing out on some of the sweetest parts of the Christian life, and that is exhorting one another and encouraging one another. And we're also being we're missing out on being encouraged and exhorted ourselves. So this is the main idea this morning. If you have a handout, it's written there on, on the top. The, the main idea this morning is exhorting and encouraging don't take place with an unbodied Christ. Exhorting and encouraging don't take place with an unbodied Christ. And we've spent 
the past couple of weeks, as I mentioned in this passage, we've, we've wanted to see what this particular passage in Hebrews, how it can enlighten or shed even more clarity on our vision and mission statement here as a church. And so we saw a couple of weeks ago that our vision of pursuing a revival of joyful worship, that's what we want to be known for. That's what we want everyone to experience on a Sunday and every other day of the week, a revival of joyful worship. We found two weeks ago that we find that revival of joyful worship, that, that as we move near to God, as we draw near into the Holy of Holies, as we pray, as we read our Bible, as we make our way closer and closer to God in communion with Him, then we are finding a revival of joyful worship. We said that part of that is wanting to major in confession and repentance, What we did just a few minutes ago, that part of the joy of the Lord, part of our reverence in worshiping Him is recognizing, again, with gospel honesty, who we are and moving toward Him, knowing that He fully and freely forgives us in Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about holding fast. Uh, we, We thought this holding fast to the confession of our hope was a perfect summary of our mission statement, which is that we trust God, God's word to make and grow disciples of Jesus in truth, hope, and steadfastness. That city church is a place where we hold fast. We hold fast to the truth of the word. And that means that we've received this truth. We talked about receiving old truths and holding on to them, that we don't invent new truths to supposedly fit into a modern age, but that we receive what has been delivered through the ages as a church. We hold fast. And today we're going to see how this vision and mission how we are pursuing a revival of joyful worship, how we are trusting in God's word. How do these things come together? And the answer is, it's a group project. These things take place not at an individual level. This isn't you and me to, uh, separate from one another. This is a corporate project. This is the faithfulness of the church. So let me read again these two verses in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, and then I'll tell you where we're going this morning. Again, it says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So from this passage, really from these two verses alone, I want to do three things this morning. Uh, The first is, uh, what are we to do as a church? So what are we to do? The second is, how are we to do it? And the third is, why are we to do it? What are we to do? How are we to do it? And why we are to do it? So first, what are we to do? What does this passage tell us that the church should be doing? I see four things in these two verses alone. The first thing is, consider. It says, let us consider. Consider is a word that does not speak to just casual or uh, unintentional thinking. It's, it's not a kind of a breeze by. It's not a, 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 a click in and a click out immediately. To consider something is to be very intentional. To consider something is to put your mind to it, is to uh, consider how best I can move into someone else's life. 
In fact, the same Greek word for consider in this passage is the same one that James uses in James 1 that you are probably familiar with, where, where James talks about a man who looks intently in a mirror to see his reflection. It's the same word that we know inherently what we look like in the mirror because we've studied our face in the mirror over all these years that you've been alive. So to consider one another is to look intently onto our brothers and sisters, to be able to see and study them and know them as, as we know our own reflection in a mirror. So often the way this plays out, this how do we consider one another, this consideration, so often it plays out in the church in the way that we anticipate the needs of one another and provide. That's one way that we can consider one another is to think ahead, is to consider what, what you're going through and what you might need as a result. And I see you guys doing this so beautifully all the time. This is the stuff of meal trains, is it not? This is the things that we do where we recognize where someone has just had a baby or someone has had a significant loss or started a new, a new job and we rally around one another because we've considered what's going to be the most helpful for you and we have decided to do that. Are you a good student of your friends? Do you study your brothers and sisters? I know we have a lot of young people here this morning, and I know you're studying for exams and tests all the time, but even as adults, we are never finished studying. So if someone asks you, are you in school, you should say, yes, I'm in the university of learning more about my friends. I'm studying all the time for that test. I should be a good student of my brothers and sisters. So what do we do? Number one, we consider. Number two, we see that we stir up one another. And that's where I get the idea of exhorting. Uh, this, this idea of stirring one another up. It's actually maybe more appropriately uh, translated provoking or agitating. It's not necessarily a smooth and pleasant experience, but what the writer of Hebrews is wanting to say here is that there are times as we meet together that we are to agitate one another in a godly way. In fact, this same word is what we find in Acts 15 when Paul and Barnabas go their separate ways. It's this severe disagreement. There, there is something here that, that actually is that iron on iron. Do you have friends that are willing to do this for you? Do you have friends, maybe part of considering one another is to confront one another in love, maybe even rebuke. Maybe as you're studying your brothers and sisters, you are noticing sin patterns in their life or, or ways in which their habits are, are bringing, uh, bringing them down and bringing others down around them. We talked about this, this idea when we looked at friendship in, in the book of Proverbs over the summer. Like being a good friend sometimes means wounding one another. We said that the wounds of a friend are sometimes the best thing that we can offer. Do you have friends like that? Are you a friend like that to someone else? Are you willing to receive that type of stirring up from a brother or a sister? These are the things that we are to consider with one another. Number three, I see that we are called to love and good works. 
that we love one another, that uh, we might provoke and stir one another up, but it's to love and good works. Obviously, uh, in the life of the believer, love plays a very prominent role. In fact, it is one of the hallmark attributes of a Christian because God is love. We, we hear about love all throughout the Bible, including and especially in 1 John when it says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so we love profoundly in the body of Christ as we meet together. And it says love and good works. So we love primarily through our service to one another. Our service to one another and the receiving of that service from our brothers and sisters. Friend, here is the sweetest experience of the Christian life. The sweetest experience of the Christian life is to be known and loved, to be cared for, to serve and to be served by one another. It doesn't get any sweeter than that. It's what we've been made to do. So we've been created to enter into this type of, of joyful service and loving compassion with one another. And it's why the writer of Hebrews in this passage is, is so insistent about you must not get into this habit of not meeting together. You cannot neglect these things. I don't know if you've considered that the way that you and I love each other, that the way you love each other in this church obviously has incredible benefits and joys for us, but exactly what Jesus said in the Gospel of John is that the way we love each other, the manner in which we enter into one another's lives, is a witness to a lost and dying world. And if we are not meeting together and loving one another and serving one another, how is that world going to see it? Our love is, is distinct. Christian love should be countercultural. Our love is a self-giving love. What we see so often in the world around us is a self-reverential love, is a selfish love. But ours is a love that, that gives, that sees the other person, that moves toward the other person in radical service. There's supernatural forgiveness that happens in the body of Christ. You don't find that in the world. How attractive is the love that brothers and sisters have between one another. And I can't, I can't help but to believe that the love that you and I can have for one another in the local church is going to grab the attention of someone who is looking in and curious about faith. And maybe they haven't been to church in years. Maybe they've never been to church. They've only have this picture of Christianity in their mind. Wow, what would it be if they came in and saw people loving each other this way, self sacrificial love. It grabbed people's attention, don't you think? Fourth thing I see is encourage. So we, we consider, we exhort or stir one another up, we exert one, exhort one another to love and good works, and we encourage one another. Encouraging is in some ways in balance to the exhorting or the provoking that I was talking about earlier. Uh, it would be not good if the only experience in the life of the body was only provoking and agitating. It would get pretty old. Some people like to do that a lot. Others maybe uh, encouraging or comforting one another. There are going to be times for both. The church 
should be doing both. Both getting into one another's lives in ways that calls us out of sin, maybe in rebuke, and certainly ways that we come alongside one another and comfort and reassure and encourage. So these are all the things that the church does. It's not exhaustive. We, we do more than this. But in this passage, those four things, that is what the church is called to do. Now, I want to consider with you, how are we to do it? How are we to do it? The answer is by not neglecting meeting together. How do we do all those things that I was just talking about? We have to do them together. I want to spend most of our time in this, how do we do it? This call to one anothering, again, can't happen without, in some form or fashion, assembling or gathering together. And the writer of Hebrews says there's a bad habit that needs breaking. Some have stopped meeting together. And if we consider uh, the early church that this was written to, there, there are likely several reasons why uh, many of these people were tempted to not meet together. One of them simply was they were still allured, and we've talked about this the past couple of weeks, they were still allured with the old ways. And so in the old ways, they didn't want to meet in a new way in a church. There was something uncomfortable about that for them. Also, they were being persecuted at this time. And, and to be persecuted and to gather together, you're making yourself a, a bigger target. Obviously, uh, we as a gathered people just have, we take up more space. We're more noticeable. And so the early church, some maybe did not want to meet together because of that. And I, see, I think some of that is still at play today, although I think there are bigger reasons for us as to why some are in the habit of not meeting together. First of all, I, uh, we talked about this a little bit last week, but I do think that uh, if you look at our culture over the past 60 to 70 years, after war, war, World War II, uh, we moved more into this idea of the individual, of individualism. And that's because of technology, that was because of the vehicle, uh, jobs changed, we, we were a post-war economy where people drove sometimes miles and miles away to go to work, and so we were just more mobile and less connected. And I think that has played a big factor. I also think that as that was happening, the, ins the, the institutes that were forming us, like schools and churches, we talked about this last week, even families and government, that the institutions that were formation centers for us have, have now have less and less influence on us. You just, you see it, that the, the, the formation centers of our culture don't have the influence that they once did. And so, in many ways, there's an anti-institutionalism. There's a, there's, a, there's a repelling of someone else forming me. And that's where we get this idea in the culture that I can form myself. The things that it takes to form me spiritually, morally, those can happen from within. I can form myself. And of course, we see this all the time, right? We see what it means to try to find your best self, not from a community, but from within. And so if that's true, if, if collective institutions that 
conformity are no longer that important, then of course, why would I go? Or why would I go as often? Maybe, I, maybe on some level I, I have a guilt that I should check in every now and then, but why would I commit to being a part of an institution that's forming me if I can do those things on my own? And I know this passage has been preached, these two verses have been preached a lot in the past three years because uh, we, we talked about this a lot in the pandemic, right? Where we weren't meeting together and there was a desire to meet together and a hope to meet together again. But this, all, all of these things that I'm talking about were happening well before the pandemic. The pandemic only accelerated them. The pandemic only gave us more uh, of an opportunity to really lean into some of the things that some of us were already doing. Now, that's not to say that people don't still gather. Um, people have always gathered and, and will always continue to gather. And in fact, there are people that are gathering right now. Uh, there are people, once NFL season starts, they're going to be gathering in AT&T Stadium and stadiums all over this country. Uh, but they're not gathering to be formed. They are gathering to, to experience something like love and encouragement, there is something that we can experience apart from the gathered church that shows us a little bit about love and encouragement. Particularly, I mentioned the NFL. This has become a $12 billion entity. I don't think that's news to anybody. We, we know how popular the NFL is. We know how much we watch it on TV or go to games, and those things are fine. Obviously, uh, not trying to bind anyone's conscience about going to a football game but you have to wonder of the millions and millions of people who will choose to gather at a football stadium this fall, how many of those would also darken the doors of a church? And if not, why not? And I think this is an opportunity for the church to be introspective as well. Because there's a reason why people may not be coming to church because they don't know that these things that we've been talking about can be found. Uh, the boys and Molly and I this summer uh, had the opportunity to go on a, a baseball road trip, and our favorite stop was Wrigley Field. I don't know how many of you have been to Chicago, been to Wrigley Field. We went to a Cubs game, and we found our way into what we think more than likely was a se season ticket holder section. And, and it was really a treat to be there and to experience this because so many of the people knew each other. And so when they came to their seat, they greeted them by name, they gave them a hug, they asked uh, how, you know, how so-and-so, what's been going on with, with this or that. And it was very clear to us that these people in this section at Wrigley Field knew each other in a way that most people in the church don't. It's incredible. It's interesting. That's joy and encouragement that we saw between these people, a, a tangible love for one another. It was, it was certainly interesting. It was certainly uh, heartwarming. But then again, it just makes me think all the more, uh, is this being found in today's church? Is this being found where God is located in his church? And I think, by the way, that this is led, this, this whole idea that um, I could find these types of things in places other than the church, I think this has uh, really contributed to the whole uh, sacred-secular breakdown in our culture that we have seen. And, and one specific way that, uh, that I've seen it personally and our family has seen it is select sports. I know a few of us 
in this room are participants in select sports. Jack's doing select baseball again this fall. And this, this idea is relatively new that on Sunday morning, uh, we would have sports. You don't have to go back very far where that would have never happened in our culture, that there was the sacred about Sunday morning, that there was this set-apart space on a Sunday that we were going to take for spiritual formation in the church. But now we've had to have conversations with Jack and his coaches, and we talk with other parents about the importance of church for us, and we're definitely outliers in, in the people that we are doing these things with in these leagues. And so I'm, I'm mentioning that as an example of how our culture is pulling us away from Sunday morning, whether we know it or not. And I'm also bring, bringing this up because I would love for you to pray for us. I would love you to pray for us as we consider what this looks like in our family. Because there was once a day where we wouldn't have to have a conversation about missing church on a Sunday, but I know now we are. And I know there are people that land in different places on that spectrum of what to do about that. And so I just ask that you would pray for us in that and pray for other families who are having to make similar decisions. So there's a bad habit of not meeting together. And it's because formation centers like churches are fading and maybe even failing in our influence. And of course, we know that all of this is happening at the same time that loneliness in our culture is exploding. Loneliness is such a problem in today's age and because we know that the lack of rich spiritual community will inevitably lead to this loneliness. Because friends, there is a hole in our heart that a football game or a baseball game cannot fill. And we know that to be true. And our hearts break when we see people around us trying to uh, find this type of community and these types of things in, in something other than the local church. So how do we break this bad habit of some? How do we break this bad habit? One commentator I read this week said this. He said, it is true that a person does not have to go to church to be a Christian. He does not have to go home to be married either. But in both cases, if he does not, he will have a very poor relationship. Again, if you unbody Christ, these beautiful things, this stirring one another up, this encouraging one another, loving and serving one another, they don't happen. In fact, we become uh, functional Gnostics. You know what a Gnostic is? In the Bible, there was a, a heresy. A Gnostic believed that the, the material world, the flesh, was ungodly, that God did not come in flesh. And so when we fail to meet together regularly, what we are effectively saying is that Christ has an unbody, and we don't believe it. And we're functional Gnostics. We devalue and dismiss the incarnation of Christ. Make no mistake, we are meant to be together as a body, as our own bodies are together. We have an incarnational ministry as the people of God. That means that we are with each other, that we put our arms around each other, that we give each other a hug or a handshake, that we speak face to face with one another because we are made in the image of God and Jesus came in flesh, fully God and fully man. 
And that means that because we meet together and have this incarnational ministry, there are things that are going to be less important for us. I have no doubt that today or later this week, you are going to be able to find a million more sermons online better than this one. I promise you that. You don't have to look very far. You, you probably have your favorite a preacher that you listen to, and sermons that you listen to, and amen for that. As great as Andrew and his team are, you can download a thousand songs on Spotify this week and worship the Lord to them. You can listen to dozens and dozens of podcasts and be edified and informed, but none of that trumps this. None of it should trump this. The gathered people of God doing ministry together Exhorting one another, encouraging one another, lifting one another up. Let us not neglecting meeting together. And we don't, we don't just meet together as consumers either. Uh, that's what so many may think of a Sunday morning, is that we are, we are simply gathering together this morning to listen to a speech and check a box. And that's, uh, I just, that is so far from what this experience should be. We're the body of Christ, the Spirit present with us. This happens at this church so beautifully on a Sunday morning. I'm so grateful for the way in which we see these things play out at City Church. And so by no means is this a a rebuke from me. I hope more than anything, this is an encouragement for us that on Sunday morning, that Mary Hannah and her team are welcoming you with the welcome of Jesus Christ, that this is part of our incarnational ministry, that you would feel the warmth of Christ in another person at this place. We desire that all the various members of this body and all the gifts that are represented in the room this morning are compelled to move toward one another and to serve one another and encourage one another. We think that Sunday mornings is the premier place for those things to happen because we see the whole church gathered together and we pray that not a member is missing. Obviously, there are going to be times where you cannot make it here. I'm not at all trying to bind your conscience to say that you must be here every week or you're not being faithful, but are you regularly gathering together? Are you regularly gathering with your discipleship group? We have women and men's ministries. We have connecting events like Feast, which we'll have in a couple weeks, and Sing, which we'll have this Wednesday. These are opportunities to come together and develop deeper and deeper community. And it's a community that should look altogether different from what the world is offering today. People who belong to one another because of Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every socioeconomic status, every walk of life, the world should look at our churches and wonder more and more, why on earth are these particular people hanging out and loving each other? The why on earth is actually because of heaven, because we are the body of Christ. So let me let me ask, when it comes to meeting together, what habit are you forming What habit are you forming? Is it a good habit of regularly assembling together and gathering together? Or is it a bad habit of not doing those things? Can I take the time right now really to just uh, 
encourage our young adults, specifically our young single adults. We have a few in the room. And even I would go as far as students. If you're in school right now, consider this. When you're a young adult, especially when you're a single young adult, your, your mobility, your ability to move from location to location is really high. And so I see in this church the faithfulness of young single people to tether themselves to the church, to be ones that encourage me, to be ones that, that press in and lean in to the local church. I read a term this week that uh, someone used this term, modern re- uh, rootlessness, when describing young single people. Consider instead what it would look like to root yourself into the local church. And younger people, when, when you uh, maybe get to college in a few years, if that's the path the Lord has for you, one of the most important things you can do in college is to find a local church to serve and to be loved. Because in our culture, there is such a desire to move to and fro and never really connect or root yourself into anything meaningful. So young people, root yourself into a local church. All right, so we've seen what are we to do, we've seen how we are to do it, and as we wrap up, the why. Why? Why talk about this? Why is this in the Bible? And what does the writer of Hebrews want us to see? Well, it's right there at the very end of verse 25. Why are we to not neglect meeting together? Because the day of Christ is drawing near. Christ is coming back. The Bible doesn't have any type of category. The Bible does not speak to the fact that Jesus is coming back, and so we just kind of coast along. The Bible doesn't have a category for us kind of hunkering down and isolating ourselves, waiting for Christ to return. Instead, because He is returning, because we have this hope, we gather. Because He's returning, we gather. We gather to encourage, we gather to exhort, we gather to provoke if necessary. And the reason we do so is because there's still so much sin and suffering on this side of heaven. We need each other. We need each other. We need to remind one another that this pain will end. We need to remind each other that there will be tears that are currently on your face that will be wiped away by Jesus Christ. And so we we need to be together to remind one another of these things. And being with other NFL fans or on the PTA or on a select baseball team or with a group of work friends just won't cut it. The gathered church is the means for these things to happen. And so this is this is Jesus. This is our our body. Our body. We are his body. So why have we fallen in love with this coming appearance of Jesus? If the writer of Hebrews is saying we do all these things because that day is drawing near when Jesus is coming back, why have we fallen in love with the coming appearance of Jesus Christ? Because nobody has ever considered us like he has. Nobody has ever provoked or confronted us in our sin like he has. Has there ever been 
anyone who has encouraged us as much as Jesus? Has there ever been anyone who has loved and served us more than Jesus Christ? Our Lord was willing to to lose all of his community. Yes, he lost his friends there at the end when he went to the cross. All his disciples scattered. They were nowhere to be found as that was happening. He lost all his community, but especially the community that he had from eternity past with father and son. He lost that on the cross. Jesus became the loneliest person to ever live so that you would be able to belong to the greatest community there ever was, the body of the risen Christ. So don't unbody him, friends. Don't unbody Jesus. Let us be built up all the more members of one another, members growing up into our head, Jesus. And may we do this and may we be encouraged to do this all the days of our life. Let us pray. Well, Father, we, we do. We, we see ourselves as your body. And we confess there's many mysteries to that. There is this one flesh union that you say is uh, Christ with his church, with his bride. And we, we are fascinated. We are uh, reverently worshiping you in that reality. But we so desperately want to lean in even more. Thank you for this church. Thank you for City Church that you have provided for us people who love you and love us, who encourage us, who at, at sometimes provoke us or agitate us unto love and good service. We, we need each other. And you have seen fit that the church be the tip of the spear, so to speak. This is your visible kingdom on earth. And so may our provoking one another, encouraging one another, considering one another, and loving one another, may that be attractive to a lost and dying world. We, we know this is a work you're pleased to do. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.